Well, it is good to be here with you once again. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I am the Promontory Campus Pastor. And uh, I, I've had the privilege now of uh, living up in Promontory for the past uh, just over three years now. And uh, one of the things we have loved about living in Chilliwack, in Promontory in particular, uh, is just how easy it is to actually go out and go for a hike. Uh, my wife and I, we lived in Surrey before moving uh, to Chilliwack, and uh, if you wanted to go for a hike when you live in Surrey, you're, you're basically going to get in your car, and you're either going to drive to North Van or, or Chilliwack, pretty much. Either way, you're going to drive for a while, then you're going to do the hike, and you're going to drive back, and it's going to be basically an entire day just spent doing one, you know, moderately, you know, long hike. However, now actually living in Promontory, I basically just walk out of my front door and I can hike up the top of Mount Tom. And, and actually, I've really enjoyed doing that. Well, one, one morning in particular uh, always stands out to me. I was going uh, to, to hike to the top, and as I looked out my window, it was incredibly foggy. It was, you could see hardly anything, but I thought, ah, you know, I, I, gotta, I gotta do some exercise. I probably won't see anything when I get to the top, but, but I gotta go at least anyways. And so as I'm hiking up, it's, it's foggy. The entire way up, it's just thick, can't see anything, can't see any of the views that you normally get on the way up. But about 20, 30 meters from the top, suddenly I, you, you walked above the clouds. You walked over to the top, and as you stood on the top of Mount Tom, you can see the entire valley just covered in fog, rolling over the hills. It was this glorious moment as suddenly, you know, you went from, from dark fogginess to, to this bright, sunshiny day. Right? If, you, if you enjoy hiking, you've probably had a moment like that at some point where you just finally get to the top and there you get to see everything. Well, my prayer is this morning that this sermon would actually be a little bit like that. Right? My prayer is that, you know what, it, it's going to seem a bit gloomy as we go through this passage. Right? We've heard it preached. This is, this is a tough text. And so my, my prayer and my hope is that if we continue through, we'll actually get to the top and be able to see some of that glory of God at the end. So if you haven't clicked off already, well... Uh, we're going to continue on with our series in the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open Acts chapter 5. We're going to walk through this text. And I hope that you have been following along in this series. If you watched uh, last week, you heard Cody. By the way, you did a great job. Cody walked us through this beautiful picture of the church, what it looks like when a church is unified and supporting one another and taking care of one another. And really, that's what we've seen all throughout the book of Acts. The church has been unified together. They were waiting together. They were praying together. They were taking care of one another, eating with one another. It's this beautiful picture so far of the church unified together, going so far as to even sell off property just to be able to take care of one another. And I hope you enjoyed that last week because this week is going to look a little bit different. If last week we looked at sort of a picture kind of like the Garden of Eden, this very, very beautiful picture, this week is much more like the fall. Because what we see here is that in the church, now suddenly sin enters into the picture. Where before it wasn't apparent, now sin is even part of the church. And if you've been around church for a little while, you know there's sin in the church. Right? The church is not full of perfect people. No, in fact, we are sinners, all of us. That's what the church is. Christians aren't perfect people. We're sinners saved by grace. 
But there's always a danger when we say things like that, that, that I think we, we have to be careful not to misunderstand. Sometimes we can say things like, you know what, we're all sinners. It's okay, we're all messed up, don't worry about it. You know, we've all you know, uh, done things wrong, we're all broken, don't worry about it. And it almost becomes part of our identity. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're sinners. But I think, I think we're liable to misunderstand something about what the Bible actually teaches us about sin. We come to a story like this where, where God puts two sinners to death and, and we're shocked. And we're likely to say, well, well hold on, uh, God isn't like that, God wouldn't do that, and yet I mean, God did. And we say, well, I, 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 don't, I don't believe in a God who, who doesn't give second chances. Right? It's kind of a half-truth there because God does give second chances, but there's also a moment in which God says, and now that's enough. In fact, that God actually holds us to our sins. So what we really need to say is, yes, we are all sinners. In fact, we're sinners who have been saved by grace. There's forgiveness for all who would repent and believe, and now go and sin no more. And see, really, that's what this passage is all about. It points us to that second half of, of go and sin no more. It points us to, to one of the big themes in this passage is all about the fear of God. And really, that's what I want us to be able to see here this morning. Like I said, I hope you enjoyed last week. <laughs> but what we're going to do here is we're going to actually walk through this passage, and I want us to ask three big questions as we do so. There's a lot of other ones that we'll take into consideration, but, but three in particular. The first is simply, what is this sin against God? What does that mean to sin against God? What does it mean then, secondly, to fear God? What does that actually uh, refer to? And then thirdly, finally, what happens to those who fear him? And so here's, here's where I want to give us a little bit of hope because this sermon actually doesn't end in despair. We, we will make it above the fog eventually, because the fear of God doesn't lead us to being afraid. The fear of God doesn't lead us to more fear. Instead, it actually leads us into love, mercy, joy, peace, and actually fearlessness. So let's walk through this passage and let's, let's make it through the valley up to the other side. All right, let's, let's uh, walk through this passage and let's start off just with the first question. What does it mean to sin against God? What, what exactly is happening in this passage? If you have your Bible, look, look back at verse 1. Verse 1 says, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and only brought a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, now let's hear, let's understand exactly what is going on. What, what exactly went wrong here? First of all, it's not that he kept some of it back. That's actually fine. He, he was fully uh, free to sell the property, to not sell the property, to keep some of it, to not keep some of it. It was his entirely. He could do whatever he wanted with this property. The issue isn't that he kept some. The issue here is that he lies about it. Right? Look back at verse 3. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Right? Ananias could have done whatever he wanted to with this money, but what he did is lie about it. Right? You can kind of picture the scene. 
Ananias walks into the church. Maybe, maybe it's just after a service and everyone's kind of milling about and, and, and Peter is right there at the front and he, he's just finished preaching and everyone's still kind of there just enjoying it and Ananias comes and he's got this, this bag full of money and he walks to the front and everyone's kind of looking and, and thinking, well, well, what's that guy doing? And he goes and he, he puts it right, right at Peter's feet and he says, this is all the money that I got for, for selling my field. Here is everything that I have. I want it to go all to the church. And you can imagine that this scene as everyone looks and they say, wow, wow, can you, can you believe he did that? That's amazing, like that's so generous. And you can almost imagine someone kind of walking up to him and saying, clapping him on the back and just saying, wow. And I said, that's so amazing. You know, your faith is such an encouragement to me. It's so amazing to see you do these things. You're just, I mean, you're blowing us out of the water. You're so amazing. And Ananias is just soaking it in. Oh, he's loving the attention. He's loving everything that's going on. But Peter hasn't spoken yet. In fact, Peter's just still staring at him. And then he says, Ananias, why have you lied? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Verse four, he says, why is it that you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Here is really the crux of what happened. Ananias wasn't just lying to people, he was lying to God. Now to be clear, I I don't think Ananias was thinking to himself. I don't think he was thinking to himself, you know what? I bet I can pull one over on God. Now, I I really doubt that actually even went through his mind. No, I'm gonna bet God never entered his mind. And therein lies the problem. All Ananias was thinking about was the praise, how, how good people would think he is. That's what was on his mind. People were gonna think he was real spiritual. But actually, Jesus warns his disciples about this kind of thing. In Matthew chapter six, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about giving to the needy. He says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. See, Ananias got a reward. He got what he wanted. He was admired for just a moment. Now hear me, if, if that's you, if you want to, to give money to, to this church and you want people to know about how much you have given, here's my advice. Post it on Facebook. Post it on Instagram. Tell everyone you, you know and are know of. Put it out there because the virtual little likes that you're going to get is the only reward you will find, and it will be fleeting. If you wanna make your faith into a show, if it's a demonstration for other people about how good you are, that is all you will get, fleeting admiration. Ananias got what he wanted, and then he dropped dead. And here's really the question I'm gonna guess most of us started with. Why did God do that? Why did God put this man to death? I mean, yes, he lied. And, you know, no one's thinking, well, that was a good thing for him to do. No, certainly it wasn't. But, but was it really that big a deal? 
I mean, let's, let's be honest, he's not the only one who's ever lied in church. Why is it that God struck him dead? And see, here Peter actually points something out for us, and I think if we miss it, we're going to miss everything else. Peter says, you didn't lie to man, but to God. See, sin is not primarily against other people, it is against God. In fact, this is what David says when he sins with Bathsheba. You remember, he he sleeps with Bathsheba and then he murders her husband. It's a horrible thing. He writes Psalm 51 kind of as as, him repenting for what he's done. And he says, speaking to God, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David realizes what Peter here is saying, that when we sin, it is sin against God. You might say, well, well, does that mean David didn't hurt people? Yes, he absolutely did. Doesn't mean that Ananias didn't actually lie to people. Yes, he absolutely did. But, and so you might say, well, okay, then it has nothing to do with God, does it? And therein lies the root of what sin is. Sin is what we do when we believe God doesn't matter when we believe God doesn't exist, when we take him out of the equation entirely. See, for Ananias, he thought that he could actually walk into the church, into the place where God's Holy Spirit dwells, and he thought he could lie and God wouldn't do anything. See, the truth is he wasn't thinking about God at all. God had not entered into his mind. Paul would later write in Romans chapter 14, He says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever we do without God in mind is sin. But here, let's not stop there, lest we think for for some reason that that God is just sort of being a bit petulant. He just wants people to pay attention to him. that's That's not ultimately what's at issue here. Right now, in one sense, we ought to simply pay attention to God. We ought to simply thank him because he created us. He created everything around us. He has given us all of our gifts, our possessions, our abilities, the opportunities we have in life. All of those are gifts of God that he continually has given us, so we should pay attention to him. But ultimately, the issue with sin is not simply that we ignored. It's actually that we have also rebelled against him. It's not simply that we ignored him, it's that we tried to replace him with ourselves. We make ourselves into God. We aren't just ignoring him, we are rebelling against him. We are usurping his role and his rule in his life, saying, you know what, actually I get to be God. I get to decide what is right and wrong, what I do, what uh, other people are going to say about me. I get to control these things. It's not just ignoring God, it's rejecting God. Here's where sin becomes a major problem, as if it weren't enough already. See, sin is rebelling and rejecting what is best. It's turning away from God. In fact, one of the most common descriptions of God in the Bible is holy. Right? Now, holiness is a whole big section of, of things, but, but at its essence, it's, it is what is perfect, it is what is pure, it is what is good, it is the definition of what moral uprightness looks like. 
Right? God is without sin or error or mistake or evil in any way. He is the definition of what is good. So when we sin, when we turn away from God, when we reject him, we are rejecting what is ultimately best in all the universe. In all of existence, we turn away from what is infinitely good in our sin, from the pinnacle of righteousness, and we actually turn away to what we think we can do. Our sin is the antithesis of what is good. It is evil, it is wrong, it is wretched, it is vile. If God is worthy of all praise, it means our sin is worthy of all condemnation. To sin against God is a terrible thing. In fact, God tells us from the very beginning the consequence of sin, it's death. Not just physical death, but spiritual and eternal death. And so when we read this, we realize that when God puts Ananias to death, it actually wasn't an overreaction. It's actually God showing us what are the consequences of our sin before him. To sin against God is a terrible thing. And so we ought to maybe consider that the next time we just flippantly say, well, you know what, we're all sinners. Consider the terror of what that sentence means. As we look around our world and the chaos that continually seems to swirl, we are all sinners. Turned away from what is best in all of existence. We have turned away from God, disregarded him, rebelled against the one who is infinitely worthy to what is infinitely worthy of condemnation. This is a heavy sermon. And in one sense, it, it has to be. There was a theologian, I, I think about 50 years ago, his name was Francis Schaeffer. He was asked a question, if he had one hour to, to share the gospel with someone, what would he do? How would he, how would he use his time? He said, I would spend 45 minutes talking about sin and 15 minutes talking about Jesus. Now, I'm not sure if we always need to keep that kind of a ratio when we're sharing our faith but I think what he's getting at here is the fact that most of us think of ourselves as pretty good. We don't think of ourselves as sinners, and even when we do think about some of the mistakes, some of the sins we have made, they're not really a big deal, are they? They're not really a, a, a big, uh, they're not a big deal, they're not of great consequence. But when we actually look at what sin is, the rejection of the holy God, well, it causes us to think a little bit more sharply. In fact, this, this text rebukes some of our thinking, pushes us to understand what it means to fear God, right? The Bible talks about fearing God in, in a couple of different ways. Sometimes it's about sort of respect, obedience, even trust at some points, but here I'm going to say it has a little bit of a different nuance to it. So this is really the second question I wanted us to deal with. What does it mean to fear God? Look back at our text, verse five. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. All right, this ends with the church and then everyone who heard about what happened to him in great 
fear. In fact, this is how the, the next half of the story ends, right? It, this story very much repeats itself with Sapphira, his wife. Sapphira enters in not knowing what's happened to her husband, and Peter comes and he says, well, is this how much money you were given? And she says, yes, that's the full amount of the money. And Peter kind of shakes his head and says, why is it that you decided you wanted to test the Holy Spirit? And just as the guys who had just finished burying her husband walk back in, she falls over dead. And verse 11 says, great Fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So what does this fear actually look like? Is it just talking about respect or obedience? Well, in one sense, yes, but but I think there's more. I think this is the kind of fear that comes when we recognize who God is and our place before him. See, Jesus teaches his disciples about what this looks like. Luke chapter 12 He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. See, ultimately, the fear of God is not just because he could kill us, It's because ultimately he is the one who will judge us for our sins and he is the one who has the authority to cast us into hell. That's not something I I say lightly or, or trivially, but it is the truth. The one we have sinned against is our judge. The one whom we have disregarded, rebelled against, usurped, is the one who sits on the judgment seat. To fear God means we recognize who he is and where we stand before him, and that is we stand under his judgment and wrath. And hear me, there is trembling involved. See, when we realize actually the scope of our sin, our rebellion, the consequences of transgression, we are left in fear. In fact, that's why the Bible has so many warnings about how we approach God. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Timothy, he says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Again, standing in fear here is recognizing who God is and our place before him. And so to persist in sin, to continue on in our sin is a frightening thing to do. 1 Corinthians, when Paul is talking to the church about how to do communion, the Lord's Supper, this is what he writes. He says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. The Bible is full of warnings about how we approach God. And here's where I think sometimes we almost get a little bit too comfortable. We're used to calling God, yeah, he's our buddy, he's our pal, he's he's kind of the companion you can kind of joke around with. And hear me, there's an element of truth to that, I don't want to dismiss that. But I think sometimes we think that way because we have no fear of judgment because a lot of the time we don't think our sins will be judged. We don't think there is a judgment coming, and so we come to a story like this. 
And, and our question is, God, why would you do that? Instead of the question we actually ought to be asking, and that is, God, why is that not me? God, why, why have I not been struck down for lying last week and the week before and the week before and the week before? See, when we understand the fear of God, the question changes from why would God do that to why didn't that happen to me? To fear God means we understand rightly who he is as the righteous judge and who we are that is sinners before him rightly under our judgment. But here is where the Bible gives us an answer. Why isn't that me? Well, it's actually because God is patient. Romans chapter four, verse two, Paul writes, he says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Why is it that God hasn't just struck all of us down? The answer is because God is patient and kind with us and he gives us a chance to repent. And here's where, here's where the story begins to take a whole different beautiful turn as the sun starts shining as we start coming up to the top. Look back at verse 11 with me. It says, and great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard these things. So here's my final question. What happens to those who fear him? Well, we could look at what happens to the church in Acts. The church in Acts goes on and they begin to preach the gospel even more to those around them. Peter gets arrested and still the church begins to thrive. Deacons come in so that they can support and take care of even more people. Even finally, Stephen is put to death. The first martyr in the church goes to meet his death without fear. Why? Because the fear of God actually gripped them more than the fear of man. To the church being filled with the fear of God created greater boldness and love for one another. How does that happen? Well, I think when we realize who God is, who we are, we begin to ask the right questions, and that is, how can I be right with God? How is it that my sins, the ones I've committed every single day of my life, how is it that I could be made right with God? Is there any hope? The answer is that the God who sits on the judgment seat stepped down to us. Jesus, born in a manger, lived as a man, and died on the cross to take the punishment that we rightfully deserve, that our sins rightfully stood under judgment. The judge has taken the judgment for us. God stepped in our place for the lifetime of ignoring and rebelling against the holiness of God. He took that punishment himself so that if anyone, anyone would trust in him, turn away from their sins and trust in what Jesus has done, you will be saved. That is the promise we have. That is why the church was filled with boldness because they understood who God is and who they were, but more than that, understood what Jesus has done. See, when we understand the, the depths and the weight of our sin, the glory of what Jesus has done is all the more beautiful for us. 
So hear me, if you feel that, that weight, that conviction of your sins, let me tell you that the strength of the grace of Jesus is far greater. If you would repent, turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven. See, that is a promise for us. Let me just invite you, even right now, today, place your trust in him. Whether that's for the very first time or or maybe you have trusted in Jesus many times before, but right now, right now you're pretty comfortable with your sin. In fact, your sin doesn't really bother you that much. You say to yourself that the outbursts of anger, they're not really a big deal. They're not really who you are. The sites that you visit, well, those are just private. They don't don't affect anything. The gossip that you tell, well, that's just trying to help people know the truth. Or maybe you've just become numb. You don't really feel any urgency against your sin calloused over the years of unconfession. If that's you, would you today confess your sins and turn and trust in Jesus? Because the good news is whether that's the first time or the thousandth time, there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. The more we realize of what our sin costs, the better and the more beautiful is the one who paid it for us. See, here's where the fear of God actually takes away our fears. The fear of God doesn't lead us to being afraid. In fact, it leads us to the opposite. The Bible is full of promises for those who fear him. Psalm 31, oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and have worked for those uh, who take refuge in you. God has stored up goodness and grace for all those who fear him, who trust in Jesus, and he is our refuge, our protection, our defender. Psalm 103 says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. The love, the faithful, the steadfast, unfailing love of God is unmeasured for those who fear him. See, when we come to find, or when we come before this God, we actually find not judgment, but mercy and grace and love. The utter contrast between what we have deserved and what God has given is staggering and it means all of our response is joy and uh, singing, dancing and rejoicing in the glory of God. What happens to those who fear God? Those who fear God find not judgment but joy everlasting. So how do we respond to a, to a story like this? Uh, it's... Even still, it's a shocking story, isn't it? And indeed, it's it's meant to be a a shocking story. It's meant to kind of wake us up from our spiritual apathy, from our spiritual laziness, right? When we think sin isn't a big deal, we will fight against it very little. But when we see what our sin actually costs, we fight against it more. So let me encourage you, fight against your sin. Right? Because we want nothing more to do with it. Change patterns in your life. Have people hold you accountable so that you might not fall back into sin. That sin might have no foothold in your life. 
We are sinners who are saved by grace, and by his grace, we go on and sin no more. And as much as this reminds us of of the seriousness, of the weight of our sin, might it also point us to the greatness of the one who paid for them. When we see how much we have been forgiven, we have so much more to rejoice. When God exposes our sins, and I pray he does so more and more, he shows us how vast and how wide is his grace and forgiveness and love for us. So how do we respond to something like this? Let us fight against our sin and rejoice more and more because of the good news of Jesus, our Savior. Let us fight and let us rejoice, and to God be all the glory. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you so much. Oh, Father, we thank you so much that Jesus came, that he died for our sins, that we might be forgiven. Lord, not because we did anything, not because we earned our way, but because you are gracious and patient and loving. Oh, Father, thank you so much. And Lord, I I pray, would you work in our lives a a spirit of, of repentance. Lord, that we might not hold on to our sins, but that we would long to repent, to confess them, that we might see more of your grace. Father, show us more of your grace, I pray. Lord, Uh, Give us a desire to fight against our sin that we might not ignore, that we might not rebel against what is best, but that we might trust in you, that we might experience the joy and the love and the peace and the fearlessness that is found in the fear of God. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your promises. Thank you for sending Jesus to us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who dwells with us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.